Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you're enjoying your summer. I think the day that this goes live is the day before the 4th of July. So happy 4th of July. I've been a little bit overwhelmed as I shared with you guys last week. I moved to this bigger office suite and I'm in the process of kind of making the move work for me while I'm seeing clients. And I had to kind of like look for my microphone for 20 minutes in the boxes. So I'm glad that I found that and I'm here. And we're going to talk about pornography addiction. So what happened that if you're a listener of this podcast, you probably heard my interview with Erika Garza. She recently wrote an autobiography and memoir of her kind of experience as, as a woman who struggled with sexual addiction. And I know that some of you guys were kind of interested and curious to learn more about porn addiction, sexual addiction. We had Dwayne Osterlin a few episodes ago that he talked about the treatments of compulsivity, sexual compulsivity behaviors and sex addiction. So I can leave a link to my interview with him. But today we're going to specifically focus on pornography addiction. This is an interesting topic in the sense that You know, I get clients at times in my practice that they're kind of thinking they're struggling with pornography addiction, but when we're talking about it, uh, it's more that they kind of have this guilt and shame around watching porn. So it's important to kind of make a distinction about what is 
porn addiction and what is kind of guilt around sexuality. And we talk, we're going to talk about how common it is and what's the treatment look like. So I'm very excited about this interview. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Wicks. Dr. Jennifer Wicks is the founder and the director of Sexual Addiction Treatment Services, an outpatient treatment program for out-of-control sexual behaviors. She has over 12 years experience treating all aspects of addiction, trauma, and sexual addiction and sex offenders. She is a certified sex addiction therapist supervisor, certified advanced alcohol and drug counselor, a licensed professional counselor, and has a PhD in psychology. Dr. Wicks is the author of the blog, Dr. Jen's Recovery Readings, as well as the prevention book, The New Age of Sex Addiction, How to Talk Your Teen About Cybersex and Pornography, in the digital age. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Wicks provides continuing education training for therapists and lectures at addiction conference throughout the U.S. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Wicks. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Jennifer Wicks in our show today. Dr. Jennifer, welcome to our show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited about our conversation today. We're going to talk about pornography addiction, as as I mentioned during the introduction. And that is a, a topic that I see at times people coming in to my office and they have concerns and questions about it. So I hope our conversation will provide some information for people who are curious about this topic. So... Let us start with talking about what is pornography addiction? And that's a bit of a loaded question without being intentionally a loaded question, I think. It depends on what camp you come from. So I come from a philosophy that believes that pornography addiction is something that is a legitimate issue that many people struggle with. What we don't have is sort of a comprehensive diagnosis, like because it's not in the DSM, so we don't have a checklist of things where we can say, if you fit two categories from A and one category from B, then it's it's compulsive. What I see in my practice for people who I believe truly have a pornography addiction are people that are watching pornography, usually in large quantities, you know, so they're spending either lots of time in terms of six, seven, nine, 10, 12, 24 hours in time watching pornography. They're uncomfortable about their pornography use. So their pornography use causes them distress. Most of the time they've tried to stop using pornography. They're unsuccessful in those attempts to stop pornography use. Frequently their pornography use escalates Um, And that escalation can be in terms of the amount of time they spend, the type of pornography that they'll look at with, you know, what we kind of say, maybe they'll start with vanilla and it gets, um, you know, more racy and more explicit as they go along, Um, you know, and and so it's, it's a use of a 
of a of pornography that causes significant distress and impairment in the person's life, whereas versus somebody who maybe watches some pornography sometimes and it doesn't cause all these negative effects. Right. As as we were talking about it before I started recording, we were talking about the controversial about the term the sex addiction and pornography addiction. And it appears that there are some disagreement when it comes to it because of some people are worried that the term would be used kind of like misused yes. to kind of use as a kind of moral kind of judgment to people. But I don't necessarily hear that's what you consider as a pornography addiction. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I And I, I get where the other side is coming from. I think, you know, the great fear and a lot of this comes from the ASEC community is that people are trying to impose religious values or moral values on sexuality, which is just an inherent human behavior, right? We are all sexual beings. We have sexuality that expresses itself in various ways. So I understand, I think I understand where they're coming from is that we don't really want to stigmatize a behavior that's just kind of normal human behavior. The other end of that is that we do see in practice you and I people who whose sexual behavior has really gotten become out of control and become problematic. Um, I think in my practice, I do see people that come in and they'll self-identify as a pornography addict. And from my clinical perspective, I don't necessarily think they are. So I think it's overdiagnosed and I own that. And maybe I'm in a, a minority camp of, of people who treat sex addiction, but I do really think it's overdiagnosed. I think a lot of people do feel maybe they're a pornography addict and it's what we might call an erotic conflict. And so it is the pornography use is causing them distress, but they're not having, you know, escalation and difficulty stopping or some of these other things. But so there's a section of folks who's who are engaging in pornography use in a non-compulsive or addictive fashion, but it goes against their moral values. It goes against perhaps their religious beliefs. Um, and that causes them internal conflict and distress. So I, I think I look at pornography use on this continuum. There's absolutely people that can look at pornography every now and then. It's not a big deal. It doesn't cause them any problems. There's some people that look at pornography that I wouldn't say is addictive or compulsive, but causes them emotional distress. And then all the way up the other side of that continuum are people whose pornography use is absolutely addictive. They can't control it. They're losing jobs. They're losing relationships. They're getting in legal trouble. So there's this, in my brain, this continuum of use versus this black and white, you're an addict, you're not an addict. Right. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you about the kind of when people are self-diagnosing themselves at times, that's not an accurate label. I, I had another client said that he was coming in because he was worried that he had pornography addiction. And we, when we got to the kind of criteria talked about it, it seems like uh, there was some value discrepancy between him and his wife about like what is the okay amount of use. And so when we talked about it, he was using it like 10 minutes, 20 minutes per week. And we talked about like, like he was watching the same kind of material. So there was no escalation. And I understand, as you said, it can be distressing and I'm not undermining kind of people's values, but it in those situations, because we are overexposed to this term in media, people might kind of feel that, oh my God, what's wrong with me? Maybe there's an addiction while when it's like kind of a discrepancy in their values. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think when those when people come in who, you know, I might say, okay, this is an erotic conflict. I, the way I look at things, I'm not a big label person. So it's not necessarily my place to say, no, you're not a sex addict or you're not a pornography addict. And that's, you know, that's wrong. But is to just really help them work out whatever the underlying issue is. And is that a relationship discrepancy? Is that erotic conflict or their own value discrepancy? 
if, if they identify as an addict and they go to a 12-step program and it helps them, I think it would be more harmful to me to be like, oh, you know, you're really not a pornography addict because they're getting support and they're getting the help that they need. So what I often say to my colleagues who, when we have these discussions about is pornography addiction real? Is it not real? I think what that does is really does more harm to the clients than it does to anybody else because we're having maybe these academic discussions about is there enough data to suggest that the dopamine system is altered during pornography use when really people are just engaging in behaviors and it's troublesome to them and we need to help them. And if they hear all of this stuff and say, oh, well, that's not real, that can cause even more distress for them. And so ultimately I try to sort of make this distinction between this academic discussion we're having versus just what's the boots on the ground? What do people need who are coming into your office distressed about what's going on? Exactly. And you're right. I, so for those of our listeners that are not aware of like ASAC, it, it was this conference that for sexual educators, sex therapists, people from clinicians and sex educators that were interested in these topics. And we just attended uh, the conference. We just got back from the conference. And back to your point about academic discussion, I was in one of the sessions and they were talking about how like a few decades ago when they were talking about sexual addiction, maybe they were thinking about wrong part of the brain. This is not exactly where it gets light up. So maybe that's not real. So you're right. I mean, when people are stressed out and they're in distress or coming into our offices, it really doesn't matter if which part of the brain gets right. activated. They need support. It's something that's impacting their quality of their lives. Absolutely. And I see the addiction, like definitely I work at treatment centers around gambling addiction, alcohol addiction. All of these things are real. So I'm thinking, well, sex is a powerful kind of escape. Yes. So it totally makes sense that become people can rely on it and over rely on it as a coping mechanism. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, I think I just, at, at that ASEC conference you mentioned, we were just at, I went to a talk by a wonderful sex educator, Midori, and, you know, she talked about the, the thought squirrels, right? And the thing we all have in our, not all, a lot of us have in our brain where we're just like constantly thinking and churning and anxiety and worry and, and how sex is such a powerful thing to turn off those thought squirrels. So I think that's part of why it can become so problematic for some people is because sexual behavior orgasm is such a potent reward. It has to be because that's survival of our species, but so potent that we can become come to rely on that to quiet the brain or try to do whatever it is we're trying to get from that experience, whether it's regulating affect or trying to quiet those thought squirrels, as she calls them. But it's a very powerful force. Right, right. And definitely helps with regulation of the mood. It can kind of like take you away from the, all the stress and all the struggles that you have. So again, I can totally understand that at times people that might not necessarily find other things rewarding or helpful to kind of like use it as their main coping mechanism. So one of the things that you talked about that was very interesting was about kind of escalation yeah. of the thing specifically around pornography. Can you elaborate more on that? Absolutely. Um, and I see this in my practice maybe more than some other people do who work with pornography addiction because um, one of my specialties actually is working with cyber sex offenders. And so people get arrested frequently for looking at child pornography. And there's a myth that child pornography is hard to find and child pornography is as easy as one click down the road on the internet. So 
some people can go there. So I've had clients and, you know, when we get people in who are arrested for these things, we do all kinds of testing. And so we have people and we know from the data that there are some people who start looking at pornography and just maybe an alcoholic starts out having a couple of drinks after dinner. You do that enough, you don't get the effect and then you have to bump it up. And so for some people, they find that escalation in the type of content that they're looking at. So maybe it'll start with some kind of mild heterosexual sex without any kind of violence or kink or anything. And, and so sometimes that escalation can just be in the types of, of pornography, looking for the more taboo, the more taboo, the more taboo, the more taboo, because you become desensitized to everything else. So I'm looking at this for two weeks, three weeks, six weeks. That's boring. That's not giving me that dopamine hit. It's not quieting my thought squirrels. I need something else. So I bump it up. And for some people, that escalation does move into child pornography, because if you're getting a hit from the taboo, there's obviously nothing more taboo than looking at these horrible images. So that escalation can go in terms of content. It can go in terms of frequency, how often. So maybe somebody starts looking, you know, 10 minutes every couple of weeks, and then it becomes every week, and then it's every day, and 10 minutes turns into an hour, turns into four hours, turns into looking at pornography at work and, and things like that. So some people do experience that escalation. Right. And I know the research on this, again, because of the controversial thing we talked about, is not that, that much. But tell us, how common do you see this pornography addiction? I wish, and you had asked when we had chatted prior, you know, what are some prevalence data? And we don't have good incidence or prevalence data like you would for diabetes or cancer or some kind of other issue. We don't even have the same kind of data we have for depression. But if you look at some of the things that are out there, some people will say 10%, some people will say 7%, some people will say more. It's, it's really hard to say how common it is. I think it's a lot more common than we probably think it is because, you know, it's a taboo subject. Right. Right? People are much more willing to go to therapy to talk about even alcohol or drug addiction these days than they are to talk about sex. There's still such a stigma around sexuality and such a, a shame around these behaviors for some people that a lot of people deal with this and suffer in silence and they'll never go to therapy or they'll never talk about it because they carry so much shame about it. So it's out there. I mean, obviously I think it's real. And I think the younger generations are probably having a higher incidence of this. Um, and that's tied into how much of their life is just online with inter straight up internet addiction or gaming addiction now, whether you're living your whole life or large quantities of your life online, part of that's just going to be pornography as part of the, the course of that whole life cycle there. Right. And I think with younger generation being more vulnerable to this, it kind of remind me of my childhood when I was like, I'm going to probably age myself, but when I was like growing up, there was just no, like, it wasn't that many, like, no, like, it was just videos. You had one videos and that was it. Or late night, like, HBO things. But right now, with the advancement of technology, if you go to a porn site, you're watching something. And, like, constantly, you get more suggestions of the exact thing that you want. Right. So, algorithm constantly kind of, like, if there's an algorithm that kind of runs in the background and kind of fine-tune, like, what you like and, like, 
you're watching something and then you get like five other suggestions of something that's really exciting and interesting. It would be so much more challenging to say no to that versus watching the same video. Right. And when it's on the on the same screen, and I mean, I think probably everyone has been on YouTube, at least in our country, that you know, you're on there, you're watching a video. And as you say, on that right side of the screen is videos suggested for you you can just keep clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking until you get down a rabbit hole that maybe you never intended to be down. And then you're in that algorithm zone and they suggest things. So technology has really ramped things up. Ease and access of opportunity. They, they talk about the three A's of, of the internet, access. Well, now many, many, many people have access to it. It's not just wealthier people who can afford to have a a PC in their home like it was back in the day. It's many, many people have a phone, they have a tablet, they have some way to access internet. Affordability is a big one, but it's a lot cheaper than it was back in the day. Back in the day, even with internet porn, you had to buy it. You don't have to buy porn anymore. It's just boom, there it is. And the last one is anonymity, is that people think that when they're online, they're anonymous. I mean, from working in the legal system so much, I know that there's always someone watching you. (laughs) (laughs) But if I had to go 20, 25 years ago to the adult bookstore and go into the back and pick up that magazine and walk up and look at somebody in the face while I purchased it, that inhibited a lot of people, I think. Whereas now I'm just boom on my phone, click, click. There's an anonymity to it that does allow us to go places we we maybe wouldn't have pre this huge technology wave we have. Right. And, and you're right with kind of being anonymous online and being able to kind of like purchase whatever you want to purchase without people knowing can can reduce the barriers. And uh, yes, yeah, especially with all the variety of things that are online. So I think that can cause some problems to people who are vulnerable to that. I guess the other thought that I have is that like, you know, Many people, I'm not against porn. I don't think I don't I don't think you are. So I don't think there is anything wrong with watching porn. But I, I bet like similar to alcohol, similar to substances, some people have more vulnerability to become addicted to uh, using these tools as a like a problematic kind of like become an addiction for them. Right. Can you tell us about what are some of the things that make people vulnerable to pornography addiction? So again, because the funding issues, we just don't have enough of that research. And so what I always think of when I, if I look at my client base is um, the adverse childhood experiences uh, research that has come out. And, And what we know is that the more adverse childhood experiences a child is exposed to, the more vulnerable they are, not only to physical illness in the future, but also addiction. So I think a lot of the folks that I see, some have a trauma history, whether that be physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, Some folks have mental health disorders that they're self-medicating, depression. There is some data out there that shows that there's a correlation between people who struggle with pornography addiction and and have ADHD, diagnosed with ADHD. And for some folks, it's a, a, a social isolation piece, right? If I've got some social anxiety or some issues interacting with people live face to face, that anonymity of the internet makes it easier for people to to, d- to connect, which can be a really great and amazing and awesome, wonderful thing, but it also can have a little shadow side to that too. So 
I see, I think I see everything. When I first started doing this work many moons ago, it wasn't so many younger clients and it was a lot more older clients. And I was seeing more of that traditional histories of abuse, histories of neglect. With the younger, the kids that are coming in, you're not necessarily getting those histories. And it's it's just this sort of normalization of living your life online. So I, I see a lot more younger people who don't have any of that sort of traumatic history that we would tend to think, oh, there must be a trauma or something. So I do think some of that has is age differentiated, although I don't have any data on that. Right. And I think uh, with younger population, I think big part of it, honestly, being exposed to kind of like material that are not age appropriate. Right. Uh, I remember one of the sessions they were saying the age is like 12, 13, something that they've like many kids already been exposed to the pornography. And again, not necessarily vanilla uh, kind of porn. It was just like some like aggression. There are a number of different things that was going on. And just like most parents have some kind of control, like a parental control on their computer, but they're, like teens at times, they're very savvy and they're able to oh. kind of figure out a way <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to watch yeah. what they want to watch. So what are the recommendations you have for the parents to help uh, their teens with kind of media literacy, porn literacy? Absolutely. And I actually, a couple of years ago, put out a book about this because I was seeing, I would talk to my clients, be like, how did your parents talk to you about sex or sexuality? And they would just give me this blank stare because <laughs> no one ever talked to them. When I think, parents are busy and parents have their own stuff around sex and sexuality. So I think there's lots of different parents out there. Some that are in complete denial, you know, we'll have parents come in that are a 16 year old son and they'll be like, well, Johnny's not looking at porn. And we're like, are you kidding me? He's been looking at porn for five years. <laughs> and so they just don't want to deal with it. And then I think that there's a lot of parents who think, okay, I'll put this block or this filter on it and that that'll be fine. Um, I don't have to worry about it. And as you know, the minute you put something on there or some new technology comes out, there's a YouTube video to tell you how to get around it. So really what we suggest to parents is you have to talk to your children and have really uncomfortable conversations and not just one big uncomfortable conversation, but multiple repeated conversations about sex and sexuality, about pornography. Talk about pornography in terms of what are the family values around pornography? What are the religious values around pornography? Um, you know, discussions about the treatment of the men and women who are making those videos and discussions of, of sexuality and to just talk, talk, talk. What a lot of people will recommend is that when you have younger children, you just straight up block things. So you filter, you block, you don't let them have access. But as they get older, we really need to teach them resiliency skills, right? They have to figure out how to navigate this world on their own because mom and dad aren't going to have a block on their phone forever. And so some of that is is limit. Then we pull some of those restrictions away and then have conversations. Or maybe it's not blocks, but software that'll kind of give a parent a report as to what kind of sites they're going to and it's just talking. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but ultimately you have to have uncomfortable conversations with your kids. And if they don't want to talk about it, it doesn't matter. You still have to talk about it. Right. And again, I love that you're talking about kind of instead of focusing on barriers for the older teens, having a conversation because I grew up in Iran and I think even in Middle East, we had number of different ways to have access to kind of adult content. So I can imagine if your child now is like 2018 living in uh, United States, definitely no matter what kind of a barrier you're putting on them, on the computer, on the kind of friendship things, they're going to get exposed and you want them to be prepared. 
And so maybe maybe your computer and your family's locked down, but what about, you know, their friends who they stay over and what about the kids on the bus? And there's no way to insulate children from exposure to pornography. And I mean, I wish there was, um, but the reality is that they are going to be exposed to it. They're going to experience it. So in my brain, you know, we should help them before they ever experience it. So when they first see it, they're not shocked, you know, because what happens when you're 10 or nine and you see pornography is that your biology is like, hey, that's pretty interesting stuff, but your brain doesn't know what to do with it. And if you're already talking to your children about sex and sexuality, they're going to be like, oh, okay, I need to go bring this to mom and dad, or I know what this is and I don't want to look at that again, or, you know, whatever. They'll have some context and they'll have safe people in their lives they know they can go talk to. Right. And at the end also, I wanted to talk, make sure we're talking about adult treatments as well. <laughs> I got so excited <laughs> with your books and all the knowledge that I think I had this detour, which is very helpful because I genuinely think parents, they don't know how to handle their teens being right. exposed to pornography. And we we need prevention. We need prevention. And then obviously with the adults who are already there, we need treatment. So what do you do? Is it something treatable or is it just like you're reducing the harm? Do you, what do you see in your practice? Well, and I'll actually say it's treatable, but we also do some harm reduction because every client comes in here with a different goal. So for clients who come in and we're doing six different things sexually and only one is problematic for them, well, then that's what we'll work for, with them to decrease whatever behavior they're they're dealing with. For somebody who comes in who is truly addicted to pornography, I kind of say we deal with things in multifaceted ways. So in the beginning, usually somebody's coming in because there's a crisis, did I lose a job, is there a relationship in peril, something like that. So we start out with some crisis management. The beginning stages for me of treatment of pornography addiction is this kind of really cognitive behavioral, let's identify what's problematic, let's figure out some ways to cope, creating healthy coping skills, teaching emotion regulation, and then once we've got some sobriety or some time away from the problematic behaviors, that's when we'll dig into what are the underlying issues. If there is trauma, we'll do trauma therapy. If there's other things going on, I want to hit the root cause. I don't just want to do a Band-Aid. I mean, you know, so you can go in and you stop the behavior. Well, that's a Band-Aid. Something's causing that behavior. I want to hit that as well. And that's the longer term work. And so people get daunted, understandably, when you're like, okay, you really want to hit this because there's like multiple phases to this. Right. And I think uh, with kind of a like pornography addiction, one thing that you talked about, people's kind of things that are exciting to them, they're arousing because of their exposure changes. Do you think is their erotic template changes? Is it something that people can still like after treatment have exciting, wonderful sex? Or that's something that's going to be out of the picture? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always tell my clients and they laugh at me, like I, I think the world would be happier if everyone was having really great consensual sex. <laughs> it's not just... It's not just about no. And I think in the beginning, that was some of my struggles with traditional sex addiction or pornography addiction treatment is that it was all no, 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 no. And I'm like, well, where's the yes, right? We need to be not just saying, hey, don't do that, but also helping clients learn about healthy sexuality, learn about their own sexuality, learn what feels good to them and help them learn how to have a really healthy, fulfilled sex, fulfilled sex life because that's part of being a human. And that's part of living their best life 
if they want to have partners or if they're in a marriage, we need to help them out and teach them what's, what's a great way to have intimacy and connection and really be at peace with their own sexuality and find a healthy way to express that. And I think that's very reassuring to hear because I feel like sexual, like sexual and pleasure, sex and pleasure is a kind of a human right kind yeah. of issue. So if you're saying that, oh, you cannot have sex, it's like saying you cannot have real food with someone that's having like a binge eating disorder, right. which is which is so not rewarding, motivating. So I'm glad that it seems like, you know, in later stages, that's something that you incorporate and many clinicians incorporate in kind of a sex addiction or pornography addiction treatment. And I think that's something that's been changing in a really, really positive way, you know, through the years in terms of people who are doing sex addiction treatment is that you can treat sex addiction and pornography addiction in a sex positive way. And maybe somebody who's way on the other side of the fence would tell me that's not possible, but I consider myself and the other people in my practice to be sex positive therapists. You know, we want you to have a healthy, fulfilled sex life. And part of the way to get there is maybe learning to stop problematic behaviors, figuring out what's healthy and moving down that road. And I, similar to you, I'm very passionate about this topic, so I can go on and on. <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm mindful of the time. So tell us a little bit about, if our listeners want to get a, get a hold of your materials, you have a book, I know you have a treatment facility. Uh, how can they go about that? Sure. We, I am the owner of a uh, private practice called Sexual Addiction Treatment Services. We have offices in Eastern Pennsylvania. So we have one office, which is outside of Philadelphia in Plymouth Meeting, and one office, which is about 50 miles north in the Lehigh Valley in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So the website is sexualaddictiontreatmentservices.com. I, when the mood strikes me, write, uh, about these topics on my blog, which is Dr. Jen's Recovery Readings. And so that you can find me there. Uh, The book I wrote, I think it was two years ago now it came out, is called The New Age of Sex Education. How to talk to your, it's a long title and I'm going to mess it up, but how to talk to your parents about, or your children about pornography and cyber sex in the digital age. And that's on Amazon. So if you go on Google and on Amazon and just search The New Age of Sex Education, I should come up. Awesome. And you guys, if you're interested, I, I leave all this information in the show notes. You can just go uh, go about navigating there. I'm finding those website there. Uh, Dr. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. This was, uh, this was a wonderful and helpful conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I feel like you and I could probably talk about this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully in future sessions. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. And as I shared with you before, I was just kind of hesitant to kind of talk about uh, pornography because as you know, people at times have very strong emotions and reaction to this topic. And I know it is a loaded subject. As you know, opponent of it, pornography kind of think it's ruins the marriages. It causes lots of issue, like changes an erotic template and people who are kind of like uh, proponents of that, kind of like watching porn to talk about erotica, it can improve your sexual lives, it increases excitement. And as you know, like any other thing in life, there is not necessarily either or situation. You know, some people are able to use porn without having an issue with it. And some people kind of like like drinking, they're not able to 
do it in moderation. So I hope this conversation gave you some better understanding of what is pornography addiction and uh, where to get help if that's something that you're struggling with. At the end also, I wanted to remind you, please, please don't forget to send me your questions. I want to make sure I'm talking about the things that are important for you. So if there's something around your sex life that you want to learn more about or you have question about, you can record your voice in my website or you can send me an email, drmoali at sexologypodcast.com. I'll do my best to kind of like express like all of the concerns that you have and uh, to protect your confidentiality. So if you write me your names, I wouldn't out you unless you want me to kind of mention your name. Anyhow, I'll talk to you uh, later. Have a great 4th of July. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.